PM board bombs. Welcome back to another EM Board Bombs podcast where board studying continues to be enjoyable. You guessed it. My name is Blake Briggs, co-host, co-founder of this little club that we got going on here. And for each 15-minute episode, you gain high yield board knowledge. As we like to say, come for the stems, stay for the content. Speaking of awesome content, we like to plug our premium EM Rapid Bombs. If you enjoy EM Boar Bombs but want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what our Rapid Boar Bombs podcast is. We just hit over 170 episodes of our Rapid Boar Bombs. Each episode is just two to four minutes where we drop high-yield bombs in question-answer format so it gets seared into your memory. On average, we drop four episodes a week, so you get a new podcast delivered to your feed almost daily. If you join now, of course, you have access to all 170 episodes in counting, and you get updates every day to your podcast feed of new episodes. The really cool part here is that the episodes on our podcast feed have the script of what we're saying, unlike this podcast, and so you have everything written down for you, too, like a little study guide. It also has links to our website showing larger study guides. You know, if you need to memorize more information on a topic, we direct you to our website if you want more resources for a deeper dive into some material. We also have the Ask Me Anything section on our website where you can go to and ask us a question. We'll get back to you pretty quickly about boards-related studying, about certain topic questions, etc. One of the neatest things we have going on that's pretty new is the Titrate Up Trial Plan, as we call it. Basically, you can test out our podcast, the Rapid Bomb, see if it's for you, and go from there. If you go to our website, emrapidbombs.supercast.com, or just go to our main website and follow the links from there, you'll see a sample podcast as well. All right, so Dr. Hussein will not be joining us today. He's actually working on snowshoe lessons for our next vacation. Apparently, kayaking was a little too intense for him. He's still talking about all the gators we saw, even though I didn't really see any gators in the Alabama bayou. So he has decided to switch activities for our next vacation. We'll let you know how that goes. I haven't had the heart to tell him that snowshoeing is a... you know, fun, but a little bit also danger-ridden as well. You know, frostbite, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, let's get into today's topic. We have a 73-year-old man presenting to the ED with nausea and vomiting. He has a history of advanced heart failure. His wife states the patient was behaving normally yesterday, but has seemed a little bit slower today, mentally foggy, and he's been vomiting more. After further questioning, he admits that he has actually been trying to catch up on internet challenges over the past 10 years and attempted the cinnamon challenge the night before. The objective of the challenge is to film oneself swallowing a spoonful of ground cinnamon in under 60 seconds without drinking anything. He states he failed even though you didn't ask him if he had won. He has had gagging and vomiting since then, not been able to keep any fluids down, and he feels pretty dehydrated. On arrival, his heart rate's 135, blood pressure 95 over 60, and the oxygen saturation in the room is 96%. He tells you he takes a diuretic and a blood pressure medication that he forgot the name of, but he said it's yellow and oval-shaped. After you tell him that this doesn't really help you much in identifying the pill, you begin to leave the room when he yells out, Oh, I'm also on digoxin. Which of the following is always an indication for digoxin fab treatment? Choice A, persistent PVCs. Choice B, hyperkalemia. 
Choice C, elevated total serum digoxin level. Choice D, elevated free digoxin level. The correct answer here is going to be choice B, hyperkalemia. So we're obviously talking about cardiac glycosides and digoxin today, and I'm honestly a little shocked we haven't done this sooner. And by we, I mean just I, because Ildefot's not here. For more than 200 years, we've been using glycosides in medicine and in heart failure specifically due to systolic dysfunction in certain supraventricular tachyarrhythmias like AFib, right? Their use has greatly declined, for sure, but they're still regularly encountered medication. I literally saw one of these like two days ago. I saw the resident ordering a digoxin level. I'm like, wait, why are we doing this? <laughs> and he's like, well, he's on digoxin. I'm like, oh, yeah, forgot that existed for a while. So they're especially common in older patients and those with advanced heart failure, making toxicity a, a genuine concern. Digoxin toxicity is a major source of morbidity and mortality, and all emergency physicians should understand it. Now, we're not going to focus on plant stuff today, so you can just calm down. I know you're listening and thinking, oh, God, with the listen to a podcast on tox plants. I thought I already had this, you know, when I read EM News this weekend, when I had the, the elephant ear plant exposure article. <laughs> so don't worry, we're not going to talk about that. So you may be thinking to yourself, though, wow, that's pretty rare. Sounds like I can kick it back and barely listen to this. Yeah, but boards really don't care how rare it is. And you have to just repeat this after us right now, okay? I hope you're saying this out loud wherever you are, walking the dog, sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, etc. Repeat after us. You will see digoxin toxicity questions on your boards, and you must be prepared for an oral boards case as well. So quick note about the plants, and I promise we're not going to talk about them anymore. So there are a lot of cardiac glycosides that are in nature, and they were used at one time to treat heart failure before digoxin was manufactured. Like, think ancient Egypt or... <laughs> Victorian England. So you should be familiar with their names because I swear to you, someone's going to mention this somewhere on the test or in real life. You just have to know this. Foxglove, probably the most easily identified one. Dogbane, less easily identified. Red Squill, Oleander, Henbane, and finally my favorite, Lily of the Valley. Iltafat told me he was going to name his next daughter Lily of the Valley, actually. So quick pathophysiology here. In myocytes, the intracellular influx of calcium is necessary for muscle contraction. Check. That's easy to remember. Cardiac glycosides reversibly inhibit the classic membrane sodium-potassium ADPase. If you're a med student, this is your jam. You know this like the back of your hand right now. You're like, I got this on lockdown. I know everything he's about to say. If you're a physician like me, you're like, okay... <laughs> What? <laughs> I gotta remember all this. So this increases intracellular sodium and decreases intracellular potassium. The increase in intracellular sodium halts the sodium-calcium channel from expelling calcium from the myocyte. Remember, we want calcium for muscle contraction, so calcium accumulates inside the myocyte, contributing to better contraction. So in summary, here are the four actions digoxin has, and I promise you this is tested. There is a similar question to this on PureCert from ASEP. It will be tested on. So cardiac glycosides do the following. Number one, they increase inotropy in cardiac myocytes. That's pretty straightforward. We all could have guessed that. Two, they increase vagal tone, and this reduces the conduction from the sinoatrial node to the AV node. Number three, 
it shortens the repolarization of the atrial ventricles. And number four, it decreases the refractory period of the myocardium. So you can imagine when you tinker with all these little parameters, it's going to be a disaster if there's toxicity, and you're absolutely correct. Too much intracellular calcium can cause after depolarizations and result in premature beats and triggered arrhythmias. The decreased refractory period also increases automaticity and heightened risk for arrhythmias. And you get a lot of arrhythmias here. Trust me, we're going to talk about them all in a minute. So again, ignoring the plants, we're going to focus on digoxin right now. It's a very narrow therapeutic window, as you can imagine, so high potential for toxicity, and it's very dependent on the body's pharmacokinetics. Normal EKG findings, however, we have to talk about this. So because digoxin messes with all these parameters, you're going to have some changes to EKGs which are expected. We would be remiss not to mention the common expected EKG findings associated with therapeutic digoxin therapy, so-called digitalis effect. So you're going to get T-wave flattening or inversion, QT interval shortening, and scoped ST segments with depression. This is classically called the Salvador Dali sagging. Just Google a picture if you can. This is the one bad part about podcasts, right? I can't show you a picture of an EKG. Maybe one day. Presentation in acute toxicity. So patients will typically present bradycardic due to the increased vagal tone. For the first several hours, patients may not even have any symptoms. The EKG findings are usually the earliest changes to herald digoxin toxicity. Following the EKG changes in the bradycardia, GI symptoms are the most common. And they're typically the initial, you know, nausea and vomiting, anorexia, generalized abdominal pain kind of symptoms. Later on, you get neurological symptoms such as confusion, generalized weakness, you know, mental fogging like that patient had. And this is due to both direct drug toxicity as well as just hypoperfusion of the cerebellum and cerebrum. Visual changes are rare, but they're going to be classic on boards. Now, I didn't tell you that today because I thought it would just be a, you know, a giveaway. It would be more funny to put the patient explanation in. Changes in color vision. This is called chromatopsia. Also, you could have diplopia, photophobia, decreased acuity, or even blindness. All those things can happen with the joxin toxicity. You're probably wondering, you're probably sitting here thinking, wait, wait a minute, what about the yellow vision change? That's called xanopsia, and that's the E.M. Borbaum's word of the day. And it's basically where objects appear yellow. It's really rare, and boards like to talk about it. I think less and less, because it really just gives it away that this is the joxin toxicity. You're not going to see it that much. And before you even ask it, Vincent Van Gogh did not suffer from the joxin toxicity, despite what you may have heard from other people. We're not going to get into that, though. There's a link on our website that uh, talks about the details of why they don't think that's the case. So out of all objective findings on presentation, arrhythmias are the most common. We said that, right? Straightforward. And virtually any arrhythmia can occur. You have to know the most and least common arrhythmias. The most common arrhythmia or just going to be PVCs. It's kind of anticlimactic. You're like, <laughs> you're probably listening and gearing yourself for like, oh, what is it? And it's just PVCs. The least common arrhythmia are going to be a bunch of atrial rhythms. A flutter, AFib, Mobitz type 2, second degree AV block. Yeah, whatever. The most classic tested EKG finding that really gets your attention is this bidirectional ventricular tachycardia. It's super recognizable when you see it because there's just nothing like it. And it's not specific only to digoxin toxicity, but it's highly associated with it, of course. And it's pretty classic. Bidirectional tachycardia is this regular rhythm where basically every other beat has a different axis as it moves via different conduction panels. It's pretty cool to look at, actually. I think Iltavat said he was going to install it as a piece of art in his office. So as with all suspected poisoning and tox cases, of course you're going to call poison control, 
you're going to take care of your ABCs, you're going to be following the basic rubric of tox questions, right? To ask the patient, EMS, family, or police, you know, agent taken, amount taken, any co-ingestions, time of ingestion. You're going to order all the usual overdose tox stuff we're not getting into. Digoxin cases, majority are accidental. And so you're going to be asking about recent diarrheal illnesses, any cases of dehydration, or acute renal insufficiency, you know, urinary output, that kind of thing. They're good questions because they could hint at a reason drug levels would suddenly increase in the body. You're going to draw digoxin levels at the time of presentation, especially six hours after ingestion. Electrolyte abnormalities are quite common, and we're getting into this a lot because it really matters here, but any increase in extracellular potassium is a very common finding and very important. Why? Well, hyperkalemia is the most important marker and predictor of mortality. Get ready for me to blow you away here with this study. One study showed that patients with a potassium level greater than 5.5 had 0% survival. <laughs> Does it get more definitive than that? No patient with a potassium level less than 5 died. Renal injury is commonly seen as the usual cause of acute toxicity, as we mentioned above. Digoxin levels, when you get them, you know, you're probably not going to memorize a digoxin level. I wouldn't. Normal is from 0.5 to 0.8. And digoxin levels, the problem with these are, is that we get them, and yeah, you have to get them. But they, they don't really help that much. They don't necessarily correlate with toxicity. You want to treat the patient, and you shouldn't ever use those levels to calculate antidote therapy with fab fragments. In fact, even, even more concerning here, after you give the fab fragments, total digoxin levels are unreliable, right? Because they measure both bound and unbound drug. If available, a free digoxin level is better. But again, you're not going to be using these two to determine your actions, depending on the patient. So let's get into that. So the management here is going to be fat fragments. I already hinted at that. And they're these digoxin-specific antibodies. It's also a Pokemon. And they're the antidote. Empiric treatment is 10 vials of fat fragments for adults and 5 for children. Notice how we don't calculate anything. It's 10 and 5. And then you go from there and, and you give more if you need to. But fat fragments may be used for empiric treatment of plant-based glycosides as well. Okay, I lied. I mentioned the plants one more time. That's it. One vial binds about 0.5 milligrams of digoxin. Importantly here, you're probably wondering, why can't I just dialyze them? So hemodialysis and extracorporeal membrane removal are not effective, and they can't be used. So the three indications for giving fab fragments are very obvious. One, any unstable arrhythmia in the setting of digoxin usage. That's, that's a piece of cake. Two, hyperkalemia, which was the correct answer from our question today. And then three, end organ dysfunction, like altermental status, renal failure, etc. Like anytime there's port, excretion, or poor behavior by the patient. In general, you should not give fab fragments in asymptomatic patients that are well-appearing with normal labs just because they have an elevated digoxin level. That's really important here, and that's why the digoxin levels have such limitations. As always, you're just going to talk to your toxicologist about this. Bradycardia can be managed with atropine. Hypotension can be managed with IV fluids. Again, classic toxicology strategy. Any unstable tachyarrhythmias in an unstable patient, of course, of course, warrant immediate electrical cardioversion. I don't know why this is so controversial. Is that going to solve the problem? Absolutely not. Fab fragments are. But every attempt should be made to maintain end organ perfusion. So of course you're going to electrically cardiovert these patients. Another thing that's commonly talked about, if you hadn't noticed, we're getting into all the controversies of digoxin management. Hyperkalemia itself does not cause death. And so temporizing measures to lower K levels don't reduce mortality. If you give fab fragments, 
the hyperkalemia will correct itself. We're going to talk about in a minute what to do and what not to do on the boards when it comes to management of digoxin toxicity, because there's some things you can do that will literally have you fail the case. In reality, in real life, it's kind of silly, because we would do these things to help this patient, in addition to digoxin fab fragments, and they probably don't make much of a difference. In practice, we realize that these are very difficult patients to manage, and a potassium level might return before the digoxin level, prompting you know, the physician to urgently manage an electrolyte issue in the setting of new EKG changes. However, giving potassium-lowering therapy can actually cause hypokalemia. I know, that's a lot to process. <laughs> As I said that, it sounded really dumb. Especially causes hypokalemia if you gave FAB treatment. In fact, hypokalemia exacerbates digoxin toxicity. So do the best you can, and please don't just throw meds at the patient hoping something sticks. Let's summarize digoxin management here in like a snapshot. What to do in real practice, what to do on boards. We'll cover what to do on boards first. So FAB fragments. You're always going to give 10 vials in adults and 5 vials in children. Guess what you do in real practice? The same thing. Good. So that's easy. You're always going to give 10 vials in adults, 5 vials in children. The initial dose of FAB fragments. Here's where it gets into a little bit controversy here. Potassium-lowering agents. So in boards, you're never going to give these. In real practice, so there's going to be a lot of caution here because you can give these and cause hypokalemia in conjunction with FAB fragments, and then hypokalemia exacerbates the joxin toxicity, but this is a risk-benefit analysis, okay? What about unstable tachyarrhythmias? Well, thankfully, that's also the same on boards. You're going to follow ACLS guidelines, which is cardioversion in an unstable patient, in addition to the FAB fragments. In real practice, same thing, immediate electrical cardioversion. Okay, here comes the most controversial thing. IV calcium. <laughs> On an important note, in the past, boards stated you should never give IV calcium as a preventive measure against hyperkalemia for cardiac protection. The reason was there was this crazy, crazy dogmatic belief dating back to the 30s with no actual data backing it up that IV calcium causes stone heart. <laughs> where the heart enters an irreversible non-contractile state due to impaired diastolic relaxation. The theory's pretty hogwash. It's pretty silly. More and more studies suggest that there is no evidence IV calcium causes anything serious. So really that theory is ultimate. So the bottom line is IV calcium is safe to give in patients with digoxin overdose in real life, but it's debatable if it really does anything. What we do know in cases of hyperkalemia where digoxin therapy has not yet been confirmed, IV calcium could be potentially life-saving, right? And shouldn't it be withheld. What do you do on boards then? I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> it's probably not good to give. You know, if you have a digoxin overdose case, just stay away from it. I think they've been caring less and less from what I read from Pure Cert, but I can't tell you what ABEM or boards are going to test you on. And I don't want to tell you to do something you could fail on. So just avoid doing anything for these digoxin overdoses on boards, except for shocking a patient if they're unstable and give fragments in the correct dosing. You know, 10 vials in adult, 5 in peds. Okay? So disposition. All patients should be admitted and monitored for a minimum of 72 hours if they've received FAG fragments. If they're asymptomatic but suspected toxicity is a concern or elevated digoxin levels are there, you want to monitor them for 6 hours and repeat a level. And if the repeat level is unchanged and the patient remains asymptomatic, then you can discharge them. All right, I think that's about it. Covered a good amount of stuff today. Pretty high yield, I think. Remember to check out our premium podcast 
at emrabbitbombs.supercast.com. You can also go to emboardbombs.com, our main website, and check out the links there to our main premium podcast. We got the titrate up plan that you can test out your trial, and we also have our free sample of podcasts on the website too. You can also check out. Got multiple different plans here. We got the monthly plan, got the yearly annual plan. It's citing stuff, and we got over 170 test questions that we have made with written scripts that you can check out, links to our website, and of course, our beautiful voices giving you high-yield, rapid-bomb information. That's going to do it for me. Hopefully next time, Ultimate will be back. We'll see you next time. Happy Thanksgiving if you're in the United States or elsewhere celebrating, and wish you safe travels, good health, peace and love. <music>